Hey, hey folks, it's Dave. And Drew. And welcome to So Many Books. So Little Time. Today we will be continuing our read of 1984 by George Orwell with chapter 22. Cue the music. So... You, uh, we're recording a little later because you had a sewing emergency. Yes, there was a sewing emergency. And now, my friend whom I helped with their sewing emergency, despite the fact that I am not technically that well trained in sewing myself, um, has now decided next year she's going to start on her sewing about six months ahead of the planned date. <laughs> well, I, I think anything in life preparation, giving time. Well, she, she put aside a month and a half. This is someone who didn't know how to thread the machine and then decided to make outfits without a pattern. M- mind you, I, look, I say preparation time is good, but I am one of those fools who, you know, oh, the assignment's due in three months. Yeah, yeah. Night before. Type, 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 yeah. type. I've got a presentation I'm preparing on um, different areas of my research. And linking them in with with like uh, life principles or, or social principles that are um, beneficial to society. And yeah, I, <clears throat> I've had a bit of time to prepare, but I didn't quite know what I was going to prepare it on or how. We got there. Got there now. Now I've got a general idea and I will prepare it over the next week. Um, but yes, so it, <laughs> despite the fact that I had a few months to do this, it just it wasn't sinking in. Heck, we've been recording this podcast for maybe the better part of a year now. We're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, but this is in that case that is an example of where we are trying to be prepared ahead of time. Yes, we we are recording the entirety of our first book before we release one episode. Exactly, and that way, even if we are slack, we've got so much buffer. <laughs> Precisely. Precisely. Well, we won't be slack. We're trying to be disciplined, but yes, yeah, yeah. you know, life happens. Oh, and and also, look, this this has been a very heavy book. It's almost over. Yes. It's been a very heavy book, yes. and um, the next one should be a little lighter, maybe a little easier to get through. Yeah, emotionally, definitely, well, mostly a much more lighthearted mm. approach. So, uh, talking about uh, how heavy this book is, the last chapter was um, more of O'Brien's zealotry as he uh, forced Winston to see that there were as many fingers as there needed to be. Yep. And he discovered, oh, I am a skeleton creature. Yes, yes, quite a, quite a sad um, end for Winston. Yeah, and in the meantime, the recognition that he had not actually really betrayed Julia in a sense of emotional betrayal that he obviously still cares for her, which is something that goes against the party, naturally. So O'Brien and O'Brien was like, yes, that's true. On to other matters. <laughs> hmm. And I think, yeah, the, the uh, chapter ended with Winston saying, um, are you going to shoot me now? And he's like, no, no, but the time will come. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, it's just... Mm. So... <clears throat> so yes so let's continue, let's continue with this um, cavalcade of joy yes excellent he was much better he was growing fatter and stronger every day if it was proper to speak of days the white light and the humming sound were the same as ever 
but the cell was a little more comfortable than the others he had been in. There was a pillow and a mattress on the plank bed, and a stool to sit on. They had given him a bath, and they allowed him to wash himself fairly frequently in a tin basin. They even gave him warm water to wash with. They had given him new underclothes and a clean suit of overalls. They had dressed his varicose ulcer with soothing ointment. They had pulled out the remnants of his teeth and given him a new set of dentures. Weeks or months must have passed. It would have been possible now to keep count of the passage of time if he had felt any interest in doing so, since he was being fed at what appeared to be regular intervals. He was getting, he judged, three meals in the twenty-four hours. Sometimes he wondered dimly whether he was getting them by night or by day. The food was surprisingly good, with meat at every third meal. Once there was even a packet of cigarettes. He had no matches, but the never-speaking guard who brought his food would give him a light. The first time he tried to smoke, it made him sick, but he persevered and spun the packet out for a long time, smoking half a cigarette after each meal. They had given him a white slate with a stump of pencil tied to the corner. At first he made no use of it. Even when he was awake, he was completely torpid. Often he would lie from one meal to the next almost without stirring, sometimes asleep, sometimes waking into vague reveries in which it was too much trouble to open his eyes. He had long grown used to sleeping with a strong light on his face. It seemed to make no difference, except that one's dreams were mo more coherent. He dreamed a great deal all through this time, and they were always happy dreams. He was in the golden country, where he was sitting among enormous, glorious, sunlit ruins with his mother, with Julia, with O'Brien, not doing anything, merely sitting in the sun, talking of peaceful things. Such thoughts as he had when he was awake were mostly about his dreams. He seemed to have lost the power of intellectual effort, now that the stimulus of pain had been removed. He was not bored. He had no desire for conversation or distraction, merely to be alone, not to be beaten or questioned. To have enough to eat and to be clean all over was completely satisfying. Yes? So he's gone down to just the very basics of, of human instinct and survival. Uh, yeah, just, just to eat and be alone and no more pain. Yeah, wow, that's, that's scary. By degrees, he came to spend less time in sleep, but he still felt no impulse to get off the bed. All he cared for was to lie quiet and feel the strength gathering in his body. He would finger himself here and there. Mm, that's unfortunate. Yes, that is really... <laughs> <laughs> yes, the meaning of language does change over time. Tra trying to make sure that it was not an illusion that his muscles were growing rounder and his skin tauter. Finally, it was established beyond a doubt that he was growing fatter. His thighs were now definitely thicker than his knees. After that, reluctantly at first, he began exercising himself regularly. In a little while, he could walk three kilometers measured by pacing the cell, and his bowed shoulders were growing straighter. He attempted more elaborate exercises and was astonished and humiliated to find what things he could not do. He could not move out of a walk. He could not hold his stool out at arm's length. He could not stand on one leg without falling over. He squatted down on his heels and found out with agonizing pains and dying calf he could just lift himself to a standing position. He lay flat on his belly and tried to lift his weight by his hands. It was hopeless. He could not raise himself a centimeter. But after a few more days, a few more mealtimes, even that feat was accomplished. A time came when he could do it six times running. 
he began to grow actually proud of his body and to cherish an intermittent belief that his face also was growing back to normal. Only when he chanced to put his head on his bald scalp did he remember the seamed, ruined face that had looked back at him out of the mirror. His mind grew more active. He sat down on the plank bed, his back against the wall and the slate on his knees, and set to work deliberately at the task of re-educating himself. He had capitulated, that was agreed. In reality, as he saw now, he had been ready to capitulate long before he had taken the decision. From the moment when he was inside the Ministry of Love, and yes, even during those minutes when he and Julia had stood helpless while the iron voice from the telescreen told them what to do, he had grasped the frivolity, the shallowness of his attempt to set himself up against the power of the party. He knew now that for seven years the thought police had watched him, like a beetle under a magnifying glass. There was no physical act, no word spoken aloud that they had not noticed, no train of thought that they had not been able to infer. Even the speck of whitish dust on the cover of his diary they had carefully replaced. They had played soundtracks to him, shown him photographs. Some of them were photographs of Julia and himself. Yes, even. He could not fight against the party any longer. Besides, the party was in the right. It must be so. How could the immortal collective brain be mistaken? By what external standard could you check its judgments? Sanity was statistical. It was merely a question of learning to think as they thought, only. The pencil felt thick and awkward in his fingers. He began to write down the thoughts that came into his head. He wrote first in large, clumsy capitals. Freedom is slavery. Then, almost without a pause, he wrote beneath it. Two and two make five. But then there came a sort of check. His mind, as though shying away from something, seemed unable to concentrate. He knew that he knew what came next, but for the moment he could not recall it. When he did recall it, it was only by consciously reasoning out what it must be. It did not come of its own accord. He wrote, God is power. He accepted everything. The past was alterable. The past never had been altered. Oceana was at war with East Asia. Oceana had always been at war with East Asia. Jones, Aronson, and Rutherford were guilty of the crimes they were charged with. He had never seen the photograph that disproved their guilt. It had never existed. He had invented it. He remembered remembering contrary things. But those were false memories, products of self-deception. How easy it all was. Only surrender and everything else followed. It was like swimming against a current that swept you backwards however hard you struggled, and then suddenly deciding to turn round and go with the current instead of opposing it. Nothing had changed except your own attitude. The predestined thing happened in any case. He hardly knew why he had rebelled. Everything was easy. Anything could be true. The so-called laws of nature were nonsense. The law of gravity was nonsense. If I wished, O'Brien had said, I could float off this floor like a soap bubble. Winston worked it out. If he thinks he floats off the floor, and if I simultaneously think I see him do it, then the thing happens. Suddenly, like a lump of submerged wreckage breaking the surface of water, the thought burst into his mind. It doesn't really happen. We imagine it. It is hallucination. He pushed the thought under instantly. The fallacy was obvious. It presupposed that somewhere or other, outside oneself, there was a real world where real things happened. But how could there be such a world? What knowledge have we of anything save through our own minds? All happenings are in the mind. Whatever happens in all minds truly happens. 
Hmm. Yay, mass delusion. <laughs> Winston's becoming a good little cog. Hmm. He's trying. He's trying, yeah. Hmm. He had no difficulty in disposing of the fallacy, and he was in no danger of succumbing to it. He realized, nevertheless, that it ought never to have occurred to him. The mind should develop a blind spot whenever a dangerous thought presented itself. The process should be automatic, instinctive. Crime stop, they called it in Newspeak. He set to work to exercise himself in crime stop. He presented himself with propositions. The party says the earth is flat. <laughs> mm. Okay, Kay, in modern times, that's actually a very funny statement. <laughs> yeah. uh, the party says the earth is flat. The party says that ice is heavier than water and trained himself in not seeing or not understanding the arguments that contradicted them. It was not easy. It needed great powers of reasoning and improvisation. The arithmetical problems raised, for instance, by such a statement as two and two make five were beyond his intellectual grasp. It needed also a sort of athleticism of mind, an ability at one moment to make the most delicate use of logic, and at the next to be unconscious of the crudest logical errors. Stupidity was as necessary as intelligence and as difficult to attain. All the while, with one part of his mind, he wondered how soon they would shoot him. Everything depends on yourself, O'Brien had said. But he knew that there was no conscious act by which he could bring it nearer. It might be ten minutes hence, or ten years. They might keep him for years in solitary confinement. They might send him to a labor camp. They might release him for a while, as they sometimes did. It was perfectly possible that before he was shot, the whole drama of his arrest and interrogation would be enacted all over again. The one certain thing was that death never came at an expected moment. The tradition, the unspoken tradition, somehow you knew it, though you had never heard it said, was that they shot you from behind, always in the back of the head, without warning, as you walked down a corridor from cell to cell. One day, but one day was not the right expression. Just as probably it was in the middle of the night, once, he fell into a strange blissful reverie, he was walking down the corridor, waiting for the bullet. He knew that it was coming in another moment. Everything was settled, smoothed out, reconciled. There were no more doubts, no more arguments, no more pain, no more fear. His body was healthy and strong. He walked easily, with a joy of movement, and with a feeling of walking in sunlight. He was not any longer in the narrow white corridors in the Ministry of Love. He was in the enormous sunlit passage, a kilometer wide, down which he had seemed to walk in the delirium induced by drugs. He was in the golden country, following the foot track across the old rabbit crop pasture. He could feel the short, springy turf under his feet and the gentle sunshine on his face. At the edge of the field were the elm trees faintly stirring, and somewhere beyond that was the stream where the dace lay in the green pools under the willows. Suddenly he started up with a shock of horror. The sweat broke out on his backbone. He had heard himself cry aloud, Julia, 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 my love, Julia. For a moment he had had an overwhelming hallucination of her presence. She had seemed to be not merely with him, but inside him. It was as though she had gotten into the texture of his skin, in that moment, he had loved her far more than he had ever done when they were together and free. Also, he knew that somewhere or other she was still alive and needed his help. He lay back on the bed and tried to compose himself. What had he done? How many years had he added to his servitude by that moment of weakness? In another moment, he would hear the tramp of boots outside. They could not let such an outburst go unpunished. They would know now, if they had not known before. 
that he was breaking the agreement he had made with them. He obeyed the party, but he still hated the party. In the old days, he had hidden a heretical mind beneath an appearance of conformity. Now he had retreated a step further. In the mind he had surrendered, but he had hoped to keep the inner heart inviolate. He knew that he was in the wrong, but he preferred to be in the wrong. They would understand that. O'Brien would understand it. It was all confessed in that single foolish cry. He would have to start all over again. It might take years. He ran a hand over his face, trying to familiarize himself with the new shape. There were deep furrows in the cheeks. The cheekbones felt sharp. The nose flattened. Besides, since last seeing himself in the glass, he had been given a complete new set of teeth. It was not easy to preserve inscrutability when you did not know what your face looked like. In any case, mere control of the features was not enough. For the first time, he perceived that if you want to keep a secret, you must also hide it from yourself. You must know all the while that it is there, but until it is needed, you must never let it emerge into your consciousness in any shape that could be given a name. From now onwards, he must not only think right, he must feel right, dream right, and all the while he must keep his hatred locked up inside him like a ball of matter which was part of himself and yet unconnected with the rest of him, a kind of cyst. So you groan there. Yeah. Telling people, like, I mean, we already knew the party determined this, but the idea of being told how to feel Mm -hmm. and controlling your feelings, it's just very... Like now, because Winston is trying to be one of them, even he's like, no, I've got the mind part down, but the heart, that's... That's That's the hard bit, yeah. And he thinks he's going to be punished for his outburst now. Yeah. One day they would decide to shoot him. You could not tell when it would happen, but a few seconds beforehand it should be possible to guess. It was always from behind, walking down a corridor. Ten seconds would be enough. In that time the world inside him could turn over. And then suddenly, without a word uttered, without a check in his step, without the changing of a line in his face, suddenly the camouflage would be down and bang, would go the batteries of his hatred. Hatred would fill him like an enormous roaring flame. And almost in the same instant, bang, would go the bullet, too late or too early. They would have blown his brain to pieces before they could reclaim it. The heretical thought would be unpunished, unrepentant, out of their reach forever. They would have blown a hole in their own perfection. To die hating them, that was freedom. He shut his eyes. It was more difficult than accepting an intellectual discipline. It was a question of degrading himself, mutilating himself. He got to plunge into the filthiest of filth. What was the most horrible, sickening thing of all? He thought of Big Brother. The enormous face. Because of constantly seeing it on posters, he always thought of it as being a meter wide, with its heavy black mustache. The eyes that followed you to and fro seemed to float into his mind of its own accord. What were his true feelings towards Big Brother? There was a heavy tramp of boots in the passage. The steel door swung open with a clang. O'Brien walked into the cell. Behind him were the waxen-faced officer and the black-uniformed guards. Get up, said O'Brien. Come here. Winston stood opposite him. O'Brien took Winston's shoulders between his strong hands and looked at him closely. You have had thoughts of deceiving me, he said. That was stupid. Stand up straighter. Look me in the face. He paused and went on in a gentler tone. You are improving. Intellectually, there is very little wrong with you. It is only emotionally that you have failed to make progress. Tell me, Winston, and remember, no lies. You know that I am always able to detect a lie. 
Tell me, what are your true feelings towards Big Brother? I hate him. You hate him? Good. Then the time has come for you to take the last step. You must love Big Brother. It is not enough to obey him. You must love him. He released Winston with a little push towards the guards. Room 101, he said. My head is totally done in right now. Like, I don't... <laughs> this is not a... So this whole... <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah. This whole topic is really difficult for me. Um, part of it is... You mean like the whole re-education of Winston? Yeah. It's it's going literally... It goes against every fiber of, of my <laughs> being in terms of... Um, the concept of personal transformation and then having to do so under emotional, physical, extreme duress, not for a, not like it's an inflicted duress as opposed to, a, um, say, an emergency or something that is out of control. It's a controlled duress. And that's the part that really does my head in. And and then if you if you throw in the fact that there's this whole emotions and uh, the subconscious and oh, I do not like it. Well, the thing that struck me just then is uh, this is kind of I think this chapter is a bit of a turning point because we followed Winston from the start, and you know because he's the protagonist and he lives in this horrible world, we've been rooting rooting for him to somehow. Um, rise above or get out alive you know so, some to 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 have a victory well, yeah. and in this chapter he's trying to change himself yeah it's it's definitely a, a shift in the sense i think the fact that he's uh, he, he said it himself multiple times he's he's capitulated so he's trying his best but then underneath it all he is trying to still undermine them at least emotionally and as he said he goes this is all i can do now if before the instant they shoot me if i can hate them then i've won yeah because there's there's something they can't control um because he hasn't he can on the surface and on on most levels look and behave like what they want him to but then still emotionally that his integrity isn't uh Affected. And and as long as he's still got life left, there's always the chance that they could work that out of him. But in that instant before the bullet hits his skull, that's it. Game over. But we've come to a point where, like, that's what victory is in this book. That's victory for Winston now, to mm -hmm. die hating them. Yeah. Do you think he's going to achieve no, it? No, because even then, he's, <laughs> he's, he's wanting to do this, but at the same time, he's going, no, he, he made a mistake because he let... His emotions, his emotions burst out of him, whether yeah. he wanted to or not, in a very odd way, but still. And I, I think why I said this is a point of no return, um, especially because now well, it's ended with the room, ominous Room 101. Uh, I, it feels, doesn't it, like, oh, no, there is no hope for Winston. Even that small act of rebellion is probably going to be pushed out of him. Yeah. So it's like this chapter... Um, the finality of, yeah, there is no happy ending, no matter how minuscule that, that victory might be, it's not going to yeah, happen. No, but yeah, so the, the idea that we've had... Abandon all hope, he who entered <laughs> well, this chapter. I already did that a few chapters ago. Okay, okay, you were already Pretty much there. from the beginning of the book, I, I, I went, this is not going to end well. Uh, um, 
but in terms of the fact that I didn't, I hadn't even considered the fact that he could be emotionally de deceptive. Um, like I didn't even think, oh wait, yeah, he could try dying whilst hating um, Big Brother and therefore not being quote unquote cured per their requirements. And so technically would have still been rebellious mm. in the face of the party. Which it's, it's funny because on one end, it's a useless rebellion, right? No yeah. one is ever going to know about it but the way o'brien he, he would he would well o'brien would yes no not not just o'brien i mean winston the Win, winston has hit that point where it's not going to make a difference for him in terms of anyone else but even for his own sake for whatever it is left left of his integrity in terms of that idea of the human spirit that he was talking about mm. That is what he's hoping he he can cling on to. But even that last, I think he's the one who's realized here with after he burst out that there's no way he can do that because they're going to pick up on that as well. Yeah. And so for him, he can't. He's on his own. He can't develop the emotional um, self manipulation that is required. Um, he can intellectually manipulate himself, but his in terms of his whatever it is that makes him him. Yeah, he cannot seem to do that on his own, and the fact that Room One Hundred and One obviously is that fun. I mean, we had um, the other skeleton guy. He was he was doing everything you would expect a party member to to do. Like, mm -hmm. no, didn't you hear what he said? Or like making yeah. up things and doing whatever he felt, you know, what what would be appropriate for the party, and his eyes just filled with hatred. That was the thing. Remember, his eyes were just filled with hatred. Well, I don't, but yeah. yeah. No, that, like that section of the book, I think it was it was the idea that his eyes were just. But he was doing different. everything he could to avoid <clears throat> room one hundred and one. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I wonder if room one hundred and one is something different for different people. Hmm. Because in this case, room one hundred and one for Winston is is helping him with the emotional manipulation. It's um, well, and also remember, um, O'Brien. Uh, in, in in that question and answer section where O'Brien really didn't answer any of yes. Winston's questions. You he, know what room one is. Yes, you right. know what's in there. That was real helpful. <laughs> Thanks, O'Brien. <laughs> so helpful. <laughs> and I, 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 that, I find that very clever as well. You know, he, he, he is Winston's lifeline. Even in his dreams, he says, oh, yes, O'Brien's in there and I'm talking to him, you know, so he's yeah. still... That's some serious Stockholm Syndrome, man. Yeah. That's disturbing. But um, that, the idea that when uh, O'Brien puts on this uh, air of camaraderie, and yes, I'll answer your questions, but he, he never actually does. No, he never does anything that's actually helpful to anyone else, except, well, in his mind he does because he's helping them all love Big Brother. Well, uh, yeah, how about that? Is like it, Winston's scary. going to die anyway, but it's like no, no. Before you die, you need to love him. Yeah, the whole thing is just really weird. Weird <laughs> is the way I'm going to. I can't figure out the right way to get the words out. But it's well, just... yeah, very, very. I mean, that whole thing about Winston being the last human, and there's something that can defeat the party. It's what the party is. It's very abnormal, isn't it? It's not in line with anything humanity. Well, not not anywhere in line with this. What we understand that humanity can do. I guess you and I will also have higher expectations for human uh, capacity, etc. But yeah, oh, yeah, 
I just just feel unclean. Unclean. Well, the next chapter is very short, and we're only we at could, uh, we half an hour. Do you want to do that? Well, let's do that. Okay. So we'll continue with chapter 23, uh, Room 101, I guess. Mm. And it's going to be short visit to Room 101. <laughs> Apparently. At each stage of his imprisonment, he had known, or seemed to know, whereabouts he was in the windowless building. Possibly there were slight differences in the air pressure. The cells were where the guards had beaten him were below ground level. The room where he had been interrogated by O'Brien was high up near the roof. This place was many meters underground, as deep down as it was possible to go. It was bigger than most of the cells he had been in, but he hardly noticed his surroundings. All he noticed was that there were two small tables straight in front of him, each covered with green bays. One was only a meter or two from him, the other was further away, near the door. He was strapped upright in a chair, so tightly that he could move nothing, not even his head. A sort of pad gripped his head from behind, forcing him to look straight in front of him. For a moment he was alone. Then the door opened, and O'Brien came in. You asked me once, said O'Brien, what was in room 101. I told you that you knew the answer already. Everyone knows it. The thing that is in room 101 is the worst thing in the world. The door opened again. A guard came in carrying something made of wire, a box or basket of some kind. He set it down on the further table. Because of the position in which O'Brien was standing, Winston could not see what the thing was. The worst thing in the world, said O'Brien, varies from individual to individual. It may be burial alive, or death by fire, or by drowning, or by impalement, or fifty other deaths. There are cases where it is some quite trivial thing, not even fatal. He had moved a little to one side so that Winston had a better view of the thing on the table. It was an oblong wire cage with a handle on top for carrying it by. Fixed to the front of it was something that looked like a fencing mask with the concave side outwards. Although it was three or four meters away from him, he could see that the cage was divided lengthways into two compartments and that there was some kind of creature in each. They were rats. In your case, said O'Brien, the worst thing in the world happens to be rats. A sort of premonitory terror, a fear of he was not certain what, had passed through Winston as soon as he caught his first glimpse in the cage. But at this moment, the meaning of the mask-like attachment in front of it suddenly sank into him. His bowels seemed to turn to water. You can't do that, he cried out in a high cracked voice. You couldn't, you couldn't, it's impossible. Do you remember, said O'Brien, the moment of panic that used to occur in your dreams? There was a wall of blackness in front of you and a roaring sound in your ears. There was something terrible on the other side of the wall. You knew that you knew what it was, but you dared not drag it out into the open. It was the rats that were on the other side of the wall. O'Brien, said Winston, making an effort to control his voice. You know this is not necessary. What is it that you want me to do? O'Brien made no direct answer. When he spoke, it was in the schoolmasterish manner that he sometimes affected. He looked thoughtfully into the distance, as though he were addressing an audience somewhere by, behind Winston's back. By itself, he said, pain is not always enough. There are occasions when a human being will stand out against pain, even to the point of death. But for everyone, there is something unendurable, something that cannot be contemplated. Courage and cowardice are not involved. If you are falling from a height, it is not cowardly to clutch at a rope. If you have come up from deep water, it is not cowardly to fill your lungs with air. It is merely an instinct which cannot be destroyed. It is the same with the rats. For you, they are unendurable. 
They are a form of pressure that you cannot withstand, even if you wish to. You will do what is required of you. But what is it? What is it? How can I do it if I don't know what it is? O'Brien picked up the cage and brought it across to the nearer table. He set it down carefully on the base cloth. Winston could hear the blood singing in his ears. He had the feeling of sitting in utter loneliness. He was in the middle of a great empty plain, a flat desert drenched with sunlight, across which all sounds came to him out of immense distances. Yet the cage with the rats was not two meters away from him. They were enormous rats. They were at the age when a rat's muzzle grows blunt and fierce and is fur brown instead of gray. The rat, said O'Brien, still addressing his invisible audience, although a rodent, is carnivorous. You are aware of that. You will have heard of the things that happen in the poor quarters of this town. In some streets, a woman dare not leave her baby alone in the house, even for five minutes. The rats are searching to attack it. Within quite a small time, they will strip it to the bones. They also attack sick or dying people. They show astonishing intelligence in knowing when a human being is helpless. There was an outburst of squeals from the cage. It seemed to reach Winston from far away. The rats were fighting. They were trying to get at each other through the partition. He heard also a deep groan of despair. That, too, seemed to come from outside himself. O'Brien picked up the cage, and as he did so, pressed something in it. There was a sharp click. Winston made a frantic effort to tear himself loose from the chair. It was hopeless. Every part of him, even his head, was held immovably. O'Brien moved the cage nearer. It was less than a meter from Winston's face. I have pressed the first lever, said O'Brien. You understand the construction of this cage. The mask will fit over your head, leaving no exit. When I press this other lever, the door of the cage will slide up. These starving brutes will shoot out of it like bullets. Have you ever seen a rat leap through the air? They will leap onto your face and bore straight into it. Sometimes they attack the eyes first. Sometimes they burrow through the cheeks and devour the tongue. The cage was nearer. It was closing in. Winston heard a succession of shrill cries which appeared to be occurring in the air above his head, but he fought furiously against his panic. To think, to think, even with a split second left, to think was the only hope. Suddenly, the foul, musty odor of the brutes struck his nostrils. There was a violent convulsion of nausea inside him, and he almost lost consciousness. Everything had gone black. For an instant, he was insane, a screaming animal. Yet he came out of the blackness clutching an idea. There was one and only one way to save himself. He must interpose another human being, the body of another human being, between himself and the rats. The circle of the mask was large enough now to shut out the vision of anything else. The wire door was a couple of handspans from his face. The rats knew what was coming now. One of them was leaping up and down. The other, an old scaly grandfather of the sewers, stood up with his pink hands against the bars and fiercely sniffed the air. Winston could see the whiskers and the yellow teeth. Again, the black panic took hold of him. He was blind, helpless, mindless. It was a common punishment in Imperial China, said O'Brien, as didactically as ever. The mask was closing on his face. The wire brushed his cheek. And then, no, it was not relief, only hope, a tiny fragment of hope. Too late, perhaps too late. But he had suddenly understood that in the whole world there was just one person to whom he could transfer his punishment. One body that he could thrust between himself and the rats. And he was shouting frantically over and over, 
Do it to Julia. Do it to Julia. Not me. Julia. I don't care what you do to her. Tear her face off. Strip her to the bones. Not me. Julia. Not me. He was falling backwards into enormous depths away from the rats. He was still strapped in the chair, but he had fallen through the floor, through the walls of the building, through the earth, through the oceans, through the atmosphere, into outer space, into the gulfs between the stars, always away, away, away from the rats. He was light years distant, but O'Brien was still standing at his side. There was still the cold touch of wire against his cheek, but through the darkness that enveloped him he heard another metallic click and knew that the cage door had clicked shut and not open. So you were right about Room 101 being different things for different people. Yeah, I had a feeling that made sense. So he's... Um, hmm. And he finally betrayed Julia. Well, yes. Yes, he did in, in the way that it counts. But that might be... <laughs> but also he's... Um, how was it? That's some serious... Like, looks like dissociation. reads like dissociation. Like they've made him snap in the way that that someone has a mental break, they have now officially made him. Right, his like his, his his the only thing keeping him sane was still that he had not betrayed Julia. Yeah, and once he did, boom, he's away. Yep. Yes. Or or as the party in O'Brien see it, the last barrier. Yeah, the last barrier limiting his um his ability to 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 rebel rebel. Well, no, the last barrier to his complete and utter dedication to Big Brother and the party. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we've got two chapters left now. Yay! Just two. And and they're normal size chapters, so it should be an episode each. Yeah. Fantastic. But uh, any other thoughts about what we just I'm went through? I just, nope. That's, that was the level of graphic that I just kind of go, nope. Yeah, nope. it was. Um, nope. You know, I don't really have any phobia towards rats but that was her hit i like rats i think yeah. they're cute but that is always terrifying like i'm talking like pet rats pet rats are well, adorable i i've heard uh i can't remember if it was a book or a documentary but i have heard of the um uh the torture where you know they put like rats in a metal or covered with a metal bucket on someone's stomach and then they heat the top nope, of the bucket so the rats burrow don't, down don't, no 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 so apparently history has used rats for the history has done uh, lots torture. Of history and present have done lots of things and lots of tortures and yeah. Yeah. Not my favorite topic ever. Um, now here's a question. Considering we get so we live near water and therefore <laughs> we get rats. Okay, okay, here's a question. Yes. Now perhaps because it was as O'Brien said it the rats were the one thing that was unendurable to him. It was beyond just a fear yeah. or a phobia. It was like, it was that one thing. So Childhood trauma, apparently, yeah. yes. So even if he wanted to, that him betraying Julia was probably an inevitability. But do you think if he had the power well to not do it, that O'Brien would have killed him? Because it seems to me that the party would not want that because no. to the end he would well, be rebel. Huh. Well, no, because it's okay if in the procedure in room 101, they were saying, like, so for some of them, you know, they have lethal dreams, uh, fears, others not lethal fears. And remember, O'Brien is a fanatic. Therefore, if he believes that he that um, <clears throat> Winston won't die because the party doesn't want him to die. He also talked about how the rats, sometimes they, burrow, they eat the tongue or the eyeballs. So that wouldn't kill Winston, but it would definitely... 
cause him Maiming, a great deal of yeah. pain. Maiming is fine. Uh, you know? What they've maimed him enough already throughout yeah, the, what months well, that you've probably been there now. Yeah, and the, yeah, and and obviously this is not this has happened before. So in terms of uh, oh yeah of yeah because he seemed very knowledgeable about the use of rats. Uh, well, they had the cage. Well, yes, they the had special cage. Although they've had him for a few months, so they could build it. Of course, um, but <clears throat> although they. they They've had him for seven years, technically. Technically, yes. Uh, more now. But um, the point is that this is something that I, I think, remember, the party, as long as they don't want him to be dead, he can't die. Mm. It sounds strange, but in the fanatical delusion that oh, is no. the party, he never dies unless they don't. Unless the party says it's ready, it's time for him to die. And I, I think on that <clears> note, <throat> O'Brien would not have taken him to room 101 if he didn't think that that was the outcome. Yeah, because he, he said, you're ready, which, because there's there's hate. They, like, he's mentally recovered enough as far as, recovered is maybe the wrong word. <laughs> he is mentally in the correct state to be amenable to room 101 mm-hmm. level of um, retraining. And I think that's why... Um, <clears throat> Maybe, you know, there were a few people in the, when he was still among uh, other people in the cells. Some of them got dragged to room 101 and they seemed to have not been there long. I think maybe even Ampleforth got taken there. And maybe for people whose minds are still, you know, don't need the deep uh, reconditioning that Winston did, that yeah. it's just as simple as like, we're, we're going to show you your greatest fears so you never do this again. Yeah, yeah. So, so some of them, it wasn't a conscious rebellion. Whereas with Winston, the the subconscious became a conscious rebellion. Mm-hmm. He actively wanted to rebel, and he was that kind of person. I mean, ultimately, all the crimes are the same; they're thought crimes. But his treatment or his management required a different approach than the others. And you know, at the end, what sent him to room one hundred and one wasn't thought crime; it was feel crime. Well. Crime think, crime feel. Yeah, it's a bit weird. It's a really weird, weird, weird. Uh, word to, <laughs> word of the day tonight day is weird. Um, well, it's all, it's one of those things where you know, like like we we've talked a lot about all what's going on in this book, and I you know I don't have like the necessary psychological training to. Um, discuss what you know i'm skeptical whether something like double think on that light that level is either possible yeah. but i guess it's also <laughs> the ideas are so abhorrent that that part of the mind just kind of accept, no. accepts the fiction and just goes well that's it it's fiction but even in, in in going along with the discussion, you can only go so far. Well, there's also, I mean, some of it is, I mean, definitely possible. And in fact, it is applied in different settings, um, you would imagine, especially indoctrination and retraining. I mean, these things exist. But I think there are, they're more subtle and less... Hmm. Um, obvious and oh, there's less overt uh, approaches in, in re-educating a population or channeling it to feel a certain way or think a certain way or respond a certain way. We have it happening all the time. It's called advertising. Yeah. Advertising, uh, the media, all these things, like they, they 
do this to us. Our politicians abuse it all the time. How people get radicalized online. <coughs> online Just staying in this yeah. with, with the same um, rhetoric over and over, keep reinforcing. Yeah. And so, I mean, if you don't have something that counters that or that balances that out or allows the individual to form a strong sense of identity that's founded in something other than outside messages like healthy human relationships yes and i mean even our understanding of what constitutes a healthy human relationship is extremely distorted and we're <clears throat> only more recently getting back into the idea of what that looks like uh yeah it's um excuse me it's definitely an interesting that there's a reason why i mean I've, I've tweeted this a couple of times already as we've been recording it when I see modern news and I just kind of go, 1984 is not meant to be used as a playbook. Please stop. Um, because it, there's a lot of things that are parallel that are really scary. Well, we I, I mean, like. I, I don't know if I've said it on a podcast, but I've, I think my friends are tired of me making this point because I stopped watching or listening to the news on radio years ago mm. because... Uh, it was like a point where like the switch flicked and I, I, I very clearly saw that basically the subtext of every single story was, hey, here's what you need to be angry or sad about today. Yeah. It, it, there's a constant manipulation. I mean, I don't go out of my way to see the news. I will inform myself of general events that are happening, but at the same time, I'll tend to read more than I, I watch. And even when I read, I'll determine whether I'm in a state where I can critically assess the source of the information or whether I'm more in a, uh, where I'm more emotionally swayable. And if I'm in the latter stage, I will not, like I tend to avoid the news then because okay. I, I know that if I'm in a state where I'm swayed by emotion i know that it's being written and designed to manipulate emotion and therefore it's not a safe thing because even no matter what the source is no matter if i choose a source that's relatively neutral there's no such thing as a neutral or an impartial source as soon as someone is uh, writing down their perception of events or what information is accessible to them they are affecting it by the bias inherent their inherent and biases. their editors hold them to cover this story yep and the editors will also have requirements and the publisher will have requirements and all those things they're uh, back to stakeholders and other things so it's all oh, there's always some sort of motivation there's no such thing as being free of motivation and there's always sway in free language of influencing well. yeah that's sorry that's what i meant is is that there's always influence involved in these things and therefore i just kind of go what are the facts what is the information as they report it and now let me see if I can find something to back what they are actually saying. Are they? Can I confirm this from other sources that are not all originating from the same mm. source? And then I go and I'll go, hey, critically try and critically assess who in whose interest is it to portray this story this way? In whose interest is it to give like for this decision to be made or for that decision to be made or for the population to be convinced that that decision has been made or will be made? So it's like that. It's, it's, it's the opposite of double think. Multi think. <clears throat> it's I guess it's multi think. It's um, actually you know it's a critical thinking. It's, it's developing a critical thinking process and discourse when it comes to topics that are raised by the media and actually questioning them in the setting of of the societies that we live. Nothing is being reported. Everything's reported as though we live in a vacuum, but we don't. Mm. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, but.
So, I'm not, I should say, I'm not a media studies or cultural studies kind of person. It's just something that is everyone needs to be trained in, I guess, to a certain level. Well, just, and, and it seems so, I guess, um, blase to say like that blanket statement of people need critical thinking skills because yeah, they're not being taught. But mm. on a level, yes, I, I, I think, especially with the internet, because that, I really think that's why we have things like I made the flat earth joke before, like yeah, how, how it's a whole other, but this is, is the, the flat earth thing having a resurgence is just the same as the anti-vax movement. It is just the same as, um, all the political sp conspiracy theories, like, like, yeah. uh, l let's go a while back. So we're not touching on modern craziness, but the birther movement of 2011, that or was even further before that. Yeah. It's, it's there. The thing is that it, it's not being it's... able to, uh, be discerning with when you hear information, whether or not you should, uh, trust that. Well, the, the first step is with any information, consider the source and then where is the source obtaining this information? Consider, verify the information, consider the source. Remember, the sources will have their own motivations to report um, things a certain way. It's not, um, as, it's not as much we're not being taught critical thinking. It's, critical thinking is, is always a part of, it's a human thing. It's what we do as humans, potentially, like as a capacity, we all have the capacity to critically think. It's not encouraged actively as part of our everyday lives. It's not uh, um, encouraged. I mean, it's actively discouraged by uh, our communication that we have with our friends or even like the, the fact Okay, you and I are here sitting and having a discourse on a book and we're trying to critically evaluate and analyze it and think of the context and the meaning of it. This is not a commonplace thing. If you're hanging with your friends most of the time, what are we doing? Because we're working, most people are, say are working or they're occupied or something is happening in their lives. So when they're socially gathering, they're trying to quote unquote switch off. Mm. The, like social um, interaction has become uh, or circulates uh, this idea, orbits this idea of it's time to switch off. You need to switch off, switch off, switch off, switch off. It's, you can switch off. That's totally cool. But if you're not using your social interaction as an opportunity to also stimulate other areas of your mind, then you're going between, um, say you're working an office job, you're filling, you're doing the Winston, you're not, you know, you're not necessarily engaged in critical thought, but you're doing what needs to be done in the context of your workplace and your, your work. But you're not outside of that. You're not taking the time to actually refine and develop critical thinking. It, it's, it's, um, it's like running a marathon. You can't be expected to be able to just get up and run a marathon. You need to be in training continuously. Well, and, and my point about the, um, the, uh, the, the anti-science and the conspiracy there is, and why it's why I think it's not being taught. It, it's more that because of the internet, it's just too easy to listen to someone speak author, especially on YouTube, listen to someone speak authoritatively about utter BS. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what's well, the same thing? It's how cons have always worked, and God knows I've been taken in by many of them, and I probably will for the rest of my life. But confidence sells, and if. Yeah. If if they're selling if they're selling lies, well then suddenly you're um 
it's it's not safe it's like they, yeah. there's a which is why there needs to be a lot more rigor in in terms of <clears throat> how do you put it i mean now we're seeing it in some platforms where they're social media platforms at least where uh, the dissemination of false or in theory the dissemination of false information in terms of um manufactured or synthesized information that has no grounds in reality uh, is is being more and more critically removed in theory in theory i say in theory because enforcing it is a whole yeah big thing i mean i've been plus a, a lot at least in the youtube space this this kind of stuff gets the views so it creates engagement which is the metric by which that entire site runs yeah and... the priority is engagement as opposed to accuracy and i think that's actually quite dangerous um but we have have um so this is a weird part as well as our social structures and our do our, our societal structures have a habit of also reinforcing um some of the these the the inherent biases like we're encouraged it's okay to go with your gut it's okay to to go with your instinct but when you go with your instinct all the time and not apply information and knowledge and refresh the source of your knowledge and review it and and keep it up to date you end up with dogma and you end up with feeling oh well i think i don't know but it feels right well and sometimes that that feeling in your gut is i don't want to question this because i might feel wrong and i'm going to feel horrible if i find out i was wrong yeah and then i i i can't be wrong because being wrong is bad you know what no being wrong is actually the source of more and more insider knowledge and learning it's As part of being human exactly <laughs> which which again go back to the book this is why one reason why the party is so dangerous. The party is never wrong. Yeah, and that in itself, well, remember the party's purpose is stagnancy. Well, its purpose is power, but yeah, they're achieving you know, power yeah, through well, stagnancy. Yeah, achieving power through stagnancy. If the purpose is to just have power and to do so by to say, of course, stagnancy. Stagnancy is going to make a claim that this is knowledge and that's that. And it, there is no more because there's like right is determined by what is right by the part. I mean, they're a whole nother level of reality delusion. Well, it reminds me how um, a lot of conservative philosophy seems to be about preserving the status quo. So you'll often see people in uh, positions of power and wealth are backing conservative ideas because they want to keep yeah. themselves in power and, and rich and, you know, all, all the benefits to go along with The that. problem is that it doesn't actually i mean th that's because wealth if wealth is measured only purely by material accumulation yeah of course that system works if wealth is is determined by um, long-term benefits and impact on humanity in terms of as a civilization how we advance and grow that's a whole different story it's a whole different um was it it's a whole different unit of measurement and it's really and you cannot have that if you don't continually review and refi refine the status quo if you don't constantly challenge what exists and and mm. encourage it to for to be better well and, and that's why you know uh, i i talked about that the power with status quo because the party kind of worked out a way what we talked about before keeping the highs on Hi. top forever yeah without um, the yeah yeah and, and it's it's scary because yeah it's that idea where oh well 
we're on top right now, so let's just freeze time. Yeah. It's really, it's a messed up, messed up society. But, <clears throat> like, I, I, it's also probably because we have this habit of breaking down humanity into, I mean, yes, there are different cultures. Yes, and we should recognize and we should acknowledge that the realities faced by people of different backgrounds due to structures that are in place in our society that are founded on um, racism, on xenophobia, on all sorts of things. Yeah, they're going to have different experiences. And that is not taking away from that. Um, I, I hear it said a lot of the time in a mocking way to mock those who, who claim um, that, re uh, that uh, ethnicity and cultural background and appearance don't make a difference in life because they shouldn't. Um, is what they cl is being claimed. They make a difference. There's there's no denying that. And there's it's mocked almost this statement of there is only one race, the human race. Um, so I, <laughs> in a rare and strange state of of non false dichotomy, um, but but a dichotomy. You can have differences. You can have diversity, and the diversity in terms of how it's treated by society can be crap. Like, like crap is an under-describer. Um, I'm super underestimate. Um, I mean, people die and are persecuted and are actively acted against based on their appearance, based on melanin content. Yeah. Really? Skin? No. Anyway, point is, the fact that we are one species, we are essentially, for the purposes of humanity we are one humanity yeah and and we got we got so many variations that make it beautiful and interesting the variations are awesome the fact that we have variations we have this thing we use the expression tolerance right tolerance is crap i mean yes <laughs> tolerate an uncomfortable sorry it is i say this bluntly <clears throat> tolerance is crap celebrate you know, acknowledge, celebrate, um, recognize, appreciate. Much more powerful than tolerance. You tolerate a pebble in your shoe. That's what you do. That's tolerance. Or you tolerate the fact that, you know, your water is a little bit, uh, you know, it tastes a little um, metallic they in they the morning. They left mayonnaise on my hamburger. Yes, they, you know, you tolerate if you don't have an eating disorder or some sort of food allergy, if the order gets stuffed up at a restaurant. Okay, you can tolerate that. You can be flexible. You can adapt to that. That's fine. You don't tolerate or adapt to the idea that someone can look different to you or have different life experiences to you or, uh, you know, have different physical characteristics to you. Mild yeah. Or might or might know something about a specialized area that you don't. Exactly. It's okay. It's fine not to know. And it's fine not to be right. You don't have to be right. You can be wrong. And in fact, celebrate being wrong because it means you get to learn something new. Yeah, that's been my life in a nutshell. That is life. That is being human. And if anyone isn't accepting of the fact that they make mistakes and that you can be wrong... We're just, ah. Anyway, so I can't even word how frustrating that is. <laughs> it's 
That's how bad it is. Like autism. Uh, so if someone is autistic, okay, they see and perceive the world in a slightly different way to you because that's just the way their brain is wired. Big whoop. You're not tolerating the fact that they perceive the world differently to the way you do. Every human being on this planet perceives the world differently. That's the whole point. An individual affects perception. Anyway, I'm just ranting now. So, so are you, are you <sighs> saying like O'Brien that there's no real outside of our individual experiences? Well, no, that's the whole point. O'Brien phrased it as the only you experience what we tell you to experience. There is no real outside of the individual because reality is determined by, by the party and inscribed on the individual. I'm saying it the other way around. Well, rem remember what Winston said when he was re-educating himself and he yeah. thought he, he, uh, he cracked it. Yeah. He said, O'Brien said he could float off uh, the floor like a soap bubble. And if he said he did that and I said I saw him do it yeah. by tricking my own brain, then it happened. But then his little bubble of, no, that's just delusion. Yeah, well, yeah. Th that's an hallucination. His, his bubble burst. <laughs> yes, his bubble burst. Um, but the point is that we've got, it's, it's, people, there's going to be a lot of backlash for this episode. I can already tell uh, you because, <laughs> but we're just going to block y'all. No, 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 I'm, I'm not puffing the idea of, uh, based on what you're saying. No, no, I know. I'm like, I, I, we have no tolerance for people who want to be aggressive and mean and nasty. It's just by. Um, but the idea of the fact that diversity is something that they, they say, you know, diversity provides strength. It doesn't just provide strength. It provides beauty. Beauty is a whole another underestimated thing. It provides perspectives that allow us to develop understanding. Diversity provides understanding and perceptions that are not limited to one, um, you know, point of view. If you only have one point of view, you fail to, you know, the story with the elephant. If you haven't heard of it, look it up. But the idea of the elephant, you have people who, uh, they use the example of, of uh, four blind men, but I, I just say. They're all, they're all feeling different parts <clears throat> of the elephant. Yeah, I'm so going to rephrase, a, I'm going to rephrase and take that story and change it saying there's an elephant in a dark room and there's people in there and they don't have a source of light. It's not necessarily mm. because they're visually impaired because that's just. Yeah, who cares? They could be, they couldn't be. We don't know. Point is that they are unable to visually see it. The real question is, why are four men in a dark room with an elephant? That is a whole other philosophical debate. But, but yeah, so the idea of you cannot, the, the truth is not, um, I mean, not the truth. Reality cannot be per perceived simply by looking at one perspective. Mm. You need to see multiple perspectives in order to um, identify what is going on. Well, this and, and, doesn't mean you need to go in and expose yourself to philosophies and, and beliefs that are completely counter to everything that you morally and emotionally stand for. But I'm saying in terms of, say, there's a, a challenge that needs to be solved. Say it's, um, I'm trying to think of a, a simple one, like... The community is, ref the, uh, is thinking about building a road somewhere or building a park somewhere they the ideal method is usually that there's feedback from the community and that's integrated into the planning processes of a city in theory that's what, like you go and you have an environmental study done if we put a road here what's the environmental impact who lives around here 
What are their feelings about this? What, why are they, what are their critical concerns about this question? I mean, this is a really bad why example. Is the, why is the road being built in the first place? Yes. What, 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 uh, what solution purpose? is yeah, what purpose does this road serve? How, like, all these things. And they're not going to come from just one single source. You need to look at it from the different perspectives. You're going to get the people who are gardeners really upset about a road being built because they're like, well, you're taking away our garden to build a road. That's not cool. And also that it affects our food pr that we grow locally and blah, blah, blah. So it's how, like, how about this? You're going out to eat with a group of friends. Actually, that's a great example. <laughs> one's a celiac, one's vegetarian. <laughs> yeah, say, yeah, you've got different, I mean, food food restrictions that you want to accommodate for. or um, and, and what's one way of, of consult? How can you consult and come to, well, I just thought consult. You need to be able to consult, put your thing, put your perspective or understanding on the table and acknowledge and accept that there will be other perspectives and understandings at the same time. So that whatever the consensus can decide, not just one dominant personality or one individual or a few individuals that are really vocal, but everyone gets to give their input and ideally let go of their input until a decision that, so, that accommodates everyone to a great extent can be found. And if anyone in the group doesn't like pizza, they're a monster. Yes, yes, well, no. Um, <clears throat> well, the, the other option is also, you, and you know what? If the outcome of that consultation they come up with something and they try just agree as a group, whatever the consensus is, let's try this out. If it doesn't work, we've learned from it. So next time we won't do that. We'll try something different. Or there might not be a next time. There might not. No, but that's the thing. Like the whole point is we shouldn't be so afraid to make mistakes. Even when we've tried to take in as many perspectives as we can, it's okay. Make a mistake, revise, review, change it, try something new. But at the same time, take on board all these different perspectives. Mm. If someone is telling you a, a scholarship system based on a certain criteria is not fair on another sector of the population, pause, reflect, review, see what happens, get input from those, those community members or community sectors that are affected by it and develop something that is appropriate or accommodates or adjusts so for it. So basically, society should really be a, a, a larger expression of the individual and the individual should ideally be adaptable. Well, yeah, but also the, individuals can, uh, the individual sees themselves as a part of society, but also as part of what shapes society. That's the thing. No individual, at least um, short of being a hermit and living on a desert island, and even then the plastic will get to you eventually, so no individual is living independently of a society. There are mm. very few experimental options, but for the vast majority of us, we are in somehow within society and affected by society. But the thing that we sometimes seem to forget, we also are the com what society is composed of. We're the proles. We have the power. We're the proles, yeah. No, but the, yeah, the idea that we are essentially... Like we are the atoms that build the fabric of reality and the fabric of reality being in this case, um, society. And we can determine it. Like even if we work on ourselves, we've talked about this before, work on yourself, but work on yourself as well in the, in the terms of the context of society, of what that means mm. in terms of social application and social reality. And anyway, it's a whole nother 
Oh, yeah, well, that, that was a lively discussion. <laughs> Sorry. It was a lively monologue with uh, occasional exchange. Sorry. No, no. no. You, you needed to get it out. Yeah, it's a... You, you, you were very quiet while I was reading because it was... Uh, you Heavy were probably topic. taking it all in. <laughs> yeah, it's like processing. Not processing this well. This is hard to process. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Well, but but yeah. we hope uh, you enjoyed listening all the same. We're we're almost done with the book now. Yes. Uh, we'll get to see the fruits of uh, Winston completely giving in <laughs> to the party next time. Well, they w- don't want him to give in, don't they? They they want him to become like transform. And you see, that's probably the biggest part that I've that's causing me difficulty with this book. I do believe in individual and collective transformation. I strongly believe it. And I also believe that that is the only way as a society, as a civilization, as humanity, we will advance. Is if we individually work on our personal growth, but also collectively strive towards transformation. And and this chapter kind of just was a big backhand in the face of that, or a perversion. (laughs) Yeah, this was a massive perversion of two of the, the... these two chapters were a massive perversion where, you know, for me, it's all about you take those things that you encourage, you support, you you encourage an individual to go on their path, whatever their path is, um, in terms of how they can make a difference in the world. And even if you don't think you're making much of a difference, if you're making a difference, if you're trying something, it's still going to, you know, even if everyone tries a little something, it's better than everyone trying nothing. Hmm. It sounds really flippant and silly, but... Um, something is better than nothing. <laughs> yeah, something is better than nothing. In terms of that each each one of us can contribute our, our part, whatever it is, whether it's, it's a, uh, you know, whether it's a drop of water that we contribute to, to uh, the river or whether we happen to be a cup full. It doesn't matter. Whatever our capacity is, whoever we are, we try our best given circumstances and everything and Mm. and our realities. And I I think that this goes totally against what's happening with poor Winston, where they're like... No, he's trying his best. It's just in the wrong direction. (laughs) Well, it's more that it's it's conformity to the... um, It's not about the individual contributing their best, and it's not about bringing the best out in the individual, but forcing the individual to fit a certain predetermined... um, square Mm. and and getting them to cut off every element of themselves for them to fit in that square and they will make you fit that square Mm. no matter what yeah uh and and the only reason they want you to fit in that square is because they can make you fit in that square well keeps them power too well no that's the power the power is demonstrated by getting a person that's true to self-mutilate essentially when it comes to their character when it comes to their emotions when it comes to their mind when it comes to their bodies every aspect of what constitutes reality for us as human beings because that's the purpose the purpose is to demonstrate power and the best power is to have power over others whereas i guess my my perception of power is the the power the individual has over themselves Mm. that's power to me i guess yeah and and the ability to encourage and support others to see that within themselves and that they are they can form that themselves well like the the difference between inspiring others or having power over others well no that's the difference i actually think the true power is the power to encourage others to to develop 
themselves. Not like it, it not not a sense of you be this way because that's the way you should be because I tell you to, but more a I believe in you and I think that um like tell me how we can support each other on developing ourselves. That's power to me. Okay. Because that that's a change, is an active change in society that starts with you know starts with the individual but doesn't end with the individual mm. because there's another person involved yeah. who comes the foundation of society. I don't know. It's weird. Weird thoughts. Weird twisty thoughts. No, no. But I... yeah, it's like the antithesis of of everything that underpins my living philosophy. <laughs> well, well, there's not there's not much perversion of your ideal philosophy left. <laughs> no. So, um. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. And you can buy, find me at Rue, R-O-O-M-C-M-O-O, Rue McMoo. That's on Twitter, as well as so many books, so little time, which is both on Facebook and on Twitter as SMBSLT podcast. The music at the top of the episode was The Ministry of Love by The Eurythmics. And at the end, it's I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. So until next time, uh, <laughs> enjoy, enjoy your reading and do your best to avoid reading 101. Yes.